Welcome to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. We just need one big fundraiser. Our clients are our donors. Bigger is better. Who cares what the mission statement is? I work in nonprofits. Bullshit! Warning, this episode is designed for people who are not yet in a tax-exempt relationship but are tax-exempt curious. If you are happily monogamous with your tax exemption, you can move on to the next episode when it is available, or stay and enjoy because you will understand this particular line of BS. Many people do charitable work in the community and get some others to help them. After a month or two, they will say to anyone who will listen, everything would be just fine if we just became a 501c3. Bullshit. I can't tell you how many people find out that I'm a community consultant and tell me, hey, I was just thinking about starting a nonprofit. In the same way somebody who introduces themselves as a doctor hears about everyone's ailments or a lawyer hears about everyone's legal troubles. And my first reaction is, no, run far away now and never say that again, as if some plague will come down upon them for just uttering this curse. I treat these people the same way I would treat a kid who says, I've decided on a career goal. I will become a rock star or a film star or a professional athlete. And why not? It's the same thing, really. That kid and the person wanting to start a nonprofit both think that it's an easy thing to do, and doing it will make them successful. But in both cases, they are very hard things to do with 80% having no success at all, and 15% of the remaining 20% having a modicum of success. In both cases, they would have to be really passionate about it, have a community of people who believe in their dream with them, work really hard, and have a great deal of luck and timing. And if I can persuade them to reject this dream, then they wouldn't succeed anyway. Because you have to live through a great deal of rejection to get to success. Many people have a little fantasy of being Mother Teresa and saving their community. And in their fantasy, they start their organization, hire someone who does all the work, and then they just have to sit back and reap the awards and praise is heaped upon them. These are the same people who fantasize about starting a restaurant that brings the whole town together over a meal and puts them on the cover of a magazine. And just like most restaurant startups, most 501c3 startups fail in their first few years. The difference is that community benefit organization startups never really seem to go out of business. They just languish for years under the radar. First, think about the logic. When in life has getting involved with a giant federal government agency ever made life better? How many times in your life have you said, my life is too simple, I need to get entangled with a giant federal bureaucracy. I need more forms to fill out, insurance policies to buy, and regulations to adhere to. You generally only think these things when jail is the other option. The thinking is that people want to help me out, but they need the tax write-off. Once I can do that, the money will just flow in. There are several problems with this line of reasoning. The first fallacy here is thinking that people give for the tax deduction. Unless you are talking very large amounts of money, most people don't worry about this, as maybe they should because it adds up. The last time you donated to a nephew's walkathon or a kid's Christmas drive or put $20 in the can, did you get a receipt? Go right upstairs and file it away for your taxes? Most people don't. If your organization is getting the large amounts that would prompt someone to ask for a receipt, you are probably pretty advanced and have a legion of people helping you with getting your tax exemption or helping you with fiscal sponsorship. More on that in a minute. The main reason people want to help a new charitable venture is because either they're passionate about it or they're passionate about you and they want to help you. That's why you help your nephew with the walkathon. The second fallacy is that once someone gets a tax exempt status, 
Doors just fly open to their office. Oh, and they magically get an office too. And money comes rolling through the door in large unmarked bills, saving crying children and every day is Christmas for all. No. Then you wake up and realize that this is just the tiniest crack in the door to success. True success in a community benefit organization comes solely from the same place all the other success in life comes from. Hard work, learning, practice. Yes, the same thing you tell your kid to get him to learn chopsticks on the piano is what you must do to run a community benefit organization. Learn it, practice it, repeat again and again. Every career has these mystical shortcuts that seem to just be a short line at the DMV. If only you could get in that line, you would find out that you could save an hour. And you move over to that line and realize it's the line for a chauffeur's license. And now you must go back. You wasted 20 minutes and now you're two hours behind the line you started in. When I was in my early 20s, I moved to Los Angeles to try my career in films as an actor and dancer. Like most people all over the country, I had a great regional career in a much smaller market and I was ready for the big city. I would hear people say, the trick is you need to get your SAG card. Then you'll get big money doing union work. They were referring to the Screen Actors Guild Union. And they were correct that once you get a SAG card, you can get union scale, which was twice what the non-union jobs paid. Soon I got an agent, and before I got my SAG card, my agent told me the truth. Don't listen to that bullshit. Once you get in the union, you can't do any non-union work. If you get your union card too soon, you don't have the resume or track record to fall back on. You get one good SAG job, join the union, and never work again. Many people go back to where they came from with their tail between their legs because they peaked too soon. He told me that when you get your first union job, you have a year to decide whether to join or not, and in that year you can do both union and non-union work. It's called the Taft-Hartley rule. That is the best of both worlds. But once you commit to join, non-union is off limits. Then when you get your second job in the year, you must join. If you don't get a second job in the first year, you can go another year. If you wait to join the union, you're building a resume and then you're ready for the union. This was great advice. I could straddle the union for a couple years before having to join and build a nice resume. This type of BS is something I see over and over again in life. And it rears its ugly head again here with tax exemption. Just like my SAG experience, getting a tax exemption too soon just makes a lot of busy work for a budding organization not ready for it with no track record. It's the same with grants. People think if I get a grant, my problems will be solved. But grants are based on track record and getting it too soon can set you up for failure. More on that in another episode. Most people don't know that there's another way to get a tax-exempt status set up for people to organically grow into it. It's the 501c3 version of the Taft-Hartley rule. It's called fiscal sponsorship or fiscal receivership. A fiscal sponsorship works like this. Debbie Dugooder tutors her son and daughter after school because she's a former teacher. They live in an economically challenged neighborhood. She inherited the house from her parents who lived there for years prior. Her parents bought the house in the 1940s when living downtown was a great thing. In the next 60 years, people moved out to the suburbs, the neighborhood got run down, drugs moved in with the criminal element, and eventually the neighborhood became a mixture of gang families, undocumented immigrant families, and some older families who lived there for a long time. But Debbie was not deterred. She grew up here. She loved this neighborhood. She thought you can't change things by running away. She liked the ethnic diversity. She wanted her kids to be raised in a diverse culture. So she started tutoring her kids, and they brought their friends. And before you know it, Debbie is running an after-school program out of her garage. Several other parents pitch in and help. This is a good thing, too, because no other youth programs existed in this neighborhood. A local business owner, Juan, notices the operation because his kids go to Debbie's house. He wants to donate it to it and help it grow. Juan introduces Debbie to City Youth, a large local youth center across town where Juan sits on the board. In some places, these could also be a local CBO incubator, which is a community benefit organization with a mission to grow other community benefit organizations. 
but in this case, it's City Youth, a local youth center across town. City Youth realizes how important it is to have youth programs in this neighborhood, with so many youth not being served. They don't have the resources to go there, so City Youth's CEO comes to visit Debbie's garage and loves what she's doing. Together, Debbie, Juan, and City Youth hammer out an agreement for City Youth to act as a fiscal sponsor. In this agreement, Debbie's Garage would become a program of City Youth, and City Youth and Debbie could raise money for the garage programs under City Youth's umbrella. 10% of that money raised, it's usually between 5 and 10%, would stay with City Youth for the service of fiscal sponsorship. This will offset the cost of grants they might write to help Debbie get started, or just administrating all the paperwork in their office. Now Debbie can solicit tax-exempt donations, write grants. She even has an office at her disposal and can grow her operation. City Youth will report Debbie's program as their own. This helps them serve their mission in a part of town they weren't serving. Debbie and City Youth together raise $100,000 that year for Debbie's programs. This provides $90,000 directly to the program and $10,000 going to City Youth to administrate it. Now Debbie can expand. Juan helps Debbie get access to an abandoned storefront on Clinton Street. She opens up the Clinton Street Youth Center. Juan helps Debbie get other businesses involved. By year three, Debbie has a budget of $300,000, minus the 10% going to City Youth. By now, many people are excited in the community about Debbie's enterprise, which has become an entire neighborhood's enterprise. Debbie, Juan, and three others form a 501c3 corporation with help from City Youth's board. A tax lawyer files the papers pro bono. The newly formed board of trustees create bylaws and hire Debbie as their first CEO, and Juan is elected board chair. Clinton Street Youth Center is a newly formed community benefit organization. City Youth who helped birth Clinton Street, they don't see them as competition, but as an ally. They agree to some fundraising boundaries. Together, they lobby city officials and businesses for more money for youth programs. Together, they write large federal grants and large business grants for which they would not be eligible for a loan. And in this way, both City Youth and Clinton Street grow larger. The Chamber of Commerce is so happy for the new youth center that they throw a big annual barbecue for them, closing down Clinton Street once each year. They start out raising $100,000 for this new enterprise. Ten years go by, and Debbie's enterprise has really grown. Debbie's trained some great staff, and her assistant for the last ten years, Lucero, is now the director, and Debbie has retired. She stays active on the board. Clinton Street is now a $2 million enterprise, making it as large as City Youth. The two large youth centers realized that merging would make them stronger with less overhead. This is even more appealing after City Youth's longtime director retires. And on the 10th anniversary of the founding of Clinton Street with City Youth's help, the two become one entity again, and Lucero becomes the CEO of the larger entity. They will work with all the other youth and education CEOs, leading an informal collaborative to make the whole community stronger. This creates strategic partnerships and collective impact projects that transform the city and lower crime. They are held up as a national model for success and collaboration. Now what I've just laid out for you here is a perfect world scenario for fiscal sponsorship. It could happen, but often, Bullshit gets in the way. Boards and organization CEOs have egos. Community benefit organizations can be competitive. All the episodes of this podcast will come into play and upend this beautiful utopia. Instead of one organization birthing another to serve the city better, growing it, and then merging again to be a stronger voice in the community, it'd be more likely that they would just stay weak and small because of infighting, politics, egos, and competition. Then someone will have the bright idea to start a 501c3 community organization whose job it is to strengthen the other weak CBOs. However, because of how it was set up and why the organization will cannibalize their investors and cause for more infighting, politics, egos, and competition, then everything will get worse instead of better, unless we can get past all the bullshit. Now here, in the Los Angeles area, there is an organization that has been working hard to create fiscal sponsorship in a way that really grows the community 
organically with lots of help and support. That organization is Community Partners. For more than 20 years, hundreds of individuals, groups, foundations, and other institutions have worked with Community Partners to create new community benefit projects, establish coalitions, and manage major philanthropic initiatives to benefit the region. Community Partners' mission is to accelerate ideas into action to advance the public good. We are thrilled to have with us Cynthia Freeman, Senior Program Director for Community Partners. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I asked Cynthia to tell us a little bit about Community Partners' role in incubating new community benefit organizations. We started as an incubator about 20 years ago, and the idea was um, we were started by a taxes employer, Al Rodriguez, and the idea was that lots of people would come to him with ideas for nonprofits, and they would say, hey, can you incorporate us as a 501c3 um, you know, pro bono, and then we'll see how it works out. And then they would come back to him a few years later sometimes and say, hey, it didn't work out. Can you disincorporate us again pro bono, um, and we'll stop this. And so he thought, you know what, we need a place where people can try out ideas and that can do incubation and help them grow. And so he started Community Partners. And over the years, what we've found is that um, we have a lot of groups coming to us. We've probably uh, had, I don't know, over 800 projects in total. We have about 150 now. But what happened was, we would have the idea, the, the model, the theory of change was, oh, we'll take these little baby chicks and we'll give them lots of support and back office services and we'll also provide lots of training and technical assistance and, and then they'll grow up to be giant chickens and then they'll leave us and become 501c3s and not to the model we want to promote. And what we found over time is that some groups, um, no matter how many services you gave them, never got larger than little tiny baby chicks. And we found that some groups... Um, got large and then they wanted to stay. They were like, well, you're giving us all these services. We get a CFO, we get an HR director, we get, um, you know, program support, we get thought partnership. Why would we leave? Can you just grow with us and give us more sophisticated services? And it's cheaper for us to just pay your fees than it is for us to have our own bookkeeper, do our own audit, et cetera. So we ended up becoming more of a full service back office to larger organizations. And then once we started doing that, we found that large organizations or people who had run very large sophisticated operations in the past as independent 501c3s, if they were starting something new, would come to us and say, hey, can we just start that? We're starting something. We have money attached. We've got senior people. We don't need a lot of, we don't need any training in grant writing or training in board development, but we do want your back office and your thought partnership. Can we come and, and have this organization have a permanent home at community partners? And we would say, sure, that sounds like a good idea. So we would we have those kinds of groups as well. And then in the last few years, we've actually seen groups converting from 501c3s to organizations under fiscal sponsorship, mainly so they can get a cost-effective back office and some of the economies of scale that we can provide as a home for many nonprofits because we're doing things like running payroll for many organizations, so it's a cheaper payroll cost. We're doing things like buying health benefits for 400 individ, uh, employees rather than five or six at a time, so we're getting cheaper healthcare costs. We can offer benefits like 403Bs and flex spending accounts because we're a large organization and we have the infrastructure, and small nonprofits can't do that. So we've kind of become a solution both for individual nonprofit efforts and for the sector, um, and, and that's been an evolution for us, and we've changed that model. So actually, we don't even use the word incubation anymore. We, we do, in effect, incubate some small groups, but that's not a, a, an accurate picture of what our services are at this point. Uh, so you really kind of developed a model. Because I remember, you know, I first heard of community partners back in the 90s when I was working for the uh, City of L.A. Cultural Affairs Department. Uh -huh. Kind of partnering together to help some small um, organizations in our area get, get bigger. And, uh, and it was pretty amazing service that you did. I mean, I was always really impressed with community partners and what you do. But it sounds like you've grown into doing more than just helping get people onto the 501c3 road, but you're actually taking people off the 501c3 
three row by giving them other ways of serving the community by being the back office for them. Right, because people don't start nonprofits, it turns out, because they want to do um, bookkeeping and insurance and set up benefits programs. So they, it, you know, and they're often not good at those things, particularly, um, I would say, with arts organizations, which is why I think in the sector you've had the evolution of a model of like an artistic director and a managing director. So I would say particularly for arts organizations, this is super helpful. Ironically, we, we actually have a big project that we're doing with the Department of Cultural Affairs. So I, I should backtrack and say that Fiscal sponsorship is about 60 or 70% of what we do, and we also have, or maybe actually now, about 50% of what we do. We also do a lot of services and intermediary work for foundations, grant makers, and government. So we have a partnership with the Department of Cultural Affairs right now where we're, um, we move funding, we do regranting and technical assistance to artists and community groups as part of the Arts Activation Fund. So we have some money and a contract from DCA to do these smaller grants in communities, and, and they're doing all kinds of like cool and interesting and community-based and sometimes wacky um, arts projects as a result. Like one was with all these barbershops along Pico, and they had music and arts and, you know, uh, just um, kind of installations at all the barbershops, and you could like walk along Pico and, and, and sort of get local barbershop culture plus arts. Um, and they've had a number of other interesting things like that. Something's coming up with dogs, where there are people are going to do some kind of art installation with dogs. So I haven't been working on that, but every now and then I get the flyers for the events, and it's always really interesting. Very cool. Well, um, that reminds me that, that in my days working with organizations, we've always talked about fiscal receiverships in the arts, mm-hmm. but you call it fiscal sponsorship. Is there a difference? I think um, I think not. I think we we don't use the term fiscal receivership. And when I've Googled fiscal rece- receivership, you made me see that the services people seem to provide under that moniker are, are fiscal sponsorship services. Um, right. The only the only thing I can think of is that a lot of art fiscal sponsors um, use a model that's uh, referred to sort of jar- in a jargony way as Model C fiscal sponsorship, which is um, a less uh, intensive form of fiscal sponsorship. So. Um, like Fractured Atlas, which is one of the quite well-known um, fiscal sponsors for arts organizations, uses Model C, Pasadena Arts Council here locally. And, and that is more like they'll take your arts grant for you and, and then give it to you as an individual artist. So they'll oversee the funds and then they'll um, either you know pay bills directly for you or hire you as an independent contractor and give you the money to do your arts right. project. Whereas what Community Partners does is primarily Model A fiscal ser- sponsorship, which is full-service fiscal sponsorship. So the organization is wholly under Community Partners. The, the employees of the nonprofit are community, technically community partners, employees, community partners board is technically the legal board. So it's a more kind of embraced, it, you know, in the eyes of the public, it looks like these are independent organizations um, that have a little line at the bottom of their website that say a project of community partners. In the eyes of the state of California, community partners is an organization with 150 small divisions that are these various nonprofits. So when an organization sees on a grant that they have to be a 501c3 organization or they could be fiscally uh, or they could have a fiscal receiver that basically is the same as a fiscal sponsor then yes yes correct although um, I would just watch out as with any either with fiscal sponsors or fiscal receivers or sometimes you hear the term fiscal agent I would always um, just ask people to be mindful of making sure that you're dealing with a reputable organization and not just a pass-through entity so um, we're, we're founding members of the National Network of Fiscal Sponsors they have a website um, that's easily findable and on it are sort of the best practices guidelines that have been um, developed and adopted by the members of the, ne- of the network. And I would encourage anyone who's considering using a fiscal sponsor to make sure that that fiscal sponsor signs onto and uses those guidelines and best practices. And some of them are very simple things like 
making sure that all money raised for specific projects is held in separate accounts or in a separate um, fund that is restricted to only use by that project because we've seen some a few sort of fly-by-night fiscal sponsors get in trouble or go out of business because they were taking project funds and using them for their core operations. And then when the projects tried to draw down their funds, they couldn't get that the money that they had raised for their work. By the way, I, I have to apologize to you because at the beginning of each podcast, I usually let uh, my my inter- interviewee know that our very first podcast was about the word nonprofits, and we're trying to get away from using that word on our podcast because, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to use the word community benefit organizations. I'm going to make you put a quarter in a jar every time you say the word nonprofits. <laughs> okay, I'll try not to raise too much money here. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I should have warned you ahead of time, and I apologize. No, that's okay. Dude, you know, cult leaders, cult leaders police language. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not implying anything about you yet, but, you know, if you're starting well, a movement I, here, I'm uh, – okay. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do is start a movement in the same way that the disabled community or uh, African-American community started movements around words. So we're trying to do the same thing. But um, I, w- I want to uh, – you know, I get asked a lot as a consultant for people that want to start a nonprofit. You know, every time mm-hmm. I'm at a dinner party, somebody wants to start a nonprofit. It's like – it's like almost as many people that want to start a restaurant, you know? Right, right. And or a coffee shop. Yeah, exactly. And they're all going to be Mother Teresa, and they're going to save the world. And it, it, it always ends up, 90% of the time, it ends up being about them, not about the community. Yes, yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, I always discourage them and say, you know, there's really no reason to start a 501c3 because you want to start one, unless there's some huge groundswell of support or, you know, like you're trying to save a house that's going to go under the wrecking ball and it becomes a historic home and it becomes a new nonprofit. Uh, sorry. See, there I go. Now I have to put a quarter in the jar. <laughs> a, a new com- community benefit organization that is, you know, dedicated to saving this house and making it into a museum. And there's this whole community groundswell of support behind that. You know, not not having that behind you, there's, there's not really any reason to because there's probably a good chance that something already exists serving that mission. Or else there'd be, you know, people up in arms because they need to start this mission that, that isn't there. And, and without that passion behind it of a whole group of people that are dying to do it, it really isn't a good idea generally. Would you agree with that? Yes, I totally agree. Um, I also get that. I, I get those questions at parties. Um, I sometimes also see – one thing we also see at community partners that I see around is sometimes um, – People want to start a nonprofit because they want to work for a nonprofit and maybe they haven't worked in the sector before. So they, they think the only way to kind of get in is to start a nonprofit. And that's absolutely the hardest, most difficult and impossible way to get into the sector. I, sometimes I just say to people, hey, it sounds like you have skills and interest and, and, you know, enthusiasm, which is the number one thing that nonprofit employers are looking for. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about what it would look like to do a job search and think about how you could, you know, be a sector switcher and, and consider working in the nonprofit sector. So sometimes it's about sort of personally wanting to work in our, in the social sector. I think the other thing I see is um, sometimes people trying to start something um, not just to employ themselves, but maybe they have a small business or a consulting firm or something that kind of could be for-profit, could be non-profit, but has not been very successful as a non-profit. And the thought is, oh, if we just convert this into a it's not successful as a for-profit, but if we convert it into a community benefit organization, then suddenly, magically, there will be grant money, and we will make a lot of money, and then we will be able to have full employment. So it's sort of employment by another name, um, and, and we, we usually will look really um, kind of with, with deep scrutiny at those because um, a lot of times it just reflects people not knowing how scarce funds are. In, in our sector and how hard it is to, to get rent money. And also, um, you know, if, typically if it's not successful, it, it hasn't been inspiring or it hasn't had a groundswell of interest as a business, it's not, that's not going to change if it becomes a nonprofit. 
But that's, that's actually another podcast we're doing is the myth that, that if you start a 501c3 and you write a grant, all of a sudden all of your, your worries are over and you save the world. And it's not that easy to write a grant or to start a 501c3. So we're, we're doing another one about the grant issue. But, um, but on right. this issue, uh, when do you think it is actually prudent to start a new organization? And when do you think people are better served by just working within an existing web of community organizations? I think um, it's if you want to start a non five hundred one c three. I'm really getting tripped up by not being able to say nonprofit. I'm really, it's really making me think about this. You're definitely making me uh, think. Um, I think I'm if sorry, you, not <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Um, I think what you need, the ingredients that we look for in a proposal from um, groups that are interested in, in starting a project of community partners and, and being accepted to our fiscal sponsorship program, the top things we're looking for are strong leadership in the founding group or founding individual, access to resources so that you either have um, access to foundations or access to donors or access to events in a way that is going to provide income for your project, or that you have access to relationships that are going to turn into income for your project, both cash and then also in-kind um, resources and donations. So do you have connections, basically? It doesn't mean you have to be wealthy. It doesn't mean you have to be famous. Um, in fact, sometimes being famous is, is a detriment to a project. But it does mean that you have to be um, someone who has a, a, a set of relationships that will help advance the work. And I think on some level, we're also looking for evidence of pilot testing or of um, uh, some other demonstration that this idea and the people leading it are inspiring to others. So you're not a leader unless you have followers. So it's like who is stepping up to be part of this? Where is their energy? And where are you seeing not just need, but evidence that the, your theory of change or your method of meeting that need is, is picking up traction and is getting sticky? So those are the things we're looking for when we get proposals. And I think those are the things people need to be thinking about if they're trying to start a 501c3, along with the obvious um, points that you made before that are so important around, is there really a need? Is this something that's not being done by others? Is there a groundswell? When I do consulting with capital campaigns, it's kind of general wisdom to say, you know, if you can do a silent campaign before you publicize it and get 80% of your funding through your, your known sources, uh, and then really do your public campaign for the last 20%, you're most likely to be successful. Um, because you're, you're you're really not going to get those big giant sponsors from from your your public campaign. You're going to get those through through quietly working with the people that already care about you. But um, do you do you think uh, that's the same for starting a 501c3? Like if you can if you can figure out how 80 percent of your support is going to come in, then you probably have a good shot of success. Um, we have a group called Safe Place for Youth. Their budget is now probably getting up towards a million a year. They started at maybe 50000 It was a group of volunteers who were doing outreach basically from the trunks of their cars to homeless youth living on the beaches and, and off the boardwalks in Venice, in California here, in, in L.A. So they, you know, they started small, but they got individual donors. They got volunteers. They got people excited about working with these young people and helping them, and then they realized we need a space. What the young people really want is a place to take a shower, a place to chill out, a place to get a meal, a place to get off the street. And eventually they opened a drop-in center. And then a few years later, uh, you know, they were in like the basement of a church. And then a few years later, fast forward, they have developed relationships such that a group of uh, wealthy um, residents of Venice and the West Side actually bought a building and is leasing it to them, right? It was kind of an option for them to eventually buy the building so that they can have, because they had a lot of NIMBY problems of find, with, with, with finding a right. space. 
Um, so, you know, again, this was not someone, this is not someone, uh, sorry, go ahead. NIMBY meaning not in my backyard. Not in my backyard, correct. So nobody wanted um, the homeless youth in their neighborhood, so they basically bought a space. They have kind of, a, it's a beautiful space, but they have a back entrance, so it's not obvious um, what it is. And actually, the, they've done a bunch of neighbors of outreach to the neighbors in that vicinity, and the neighbors are really actually very happy with them, and some of them have come in to volunteer, or they send over food, or they donate plants, or whatever. So it's worked out very well once they got in. But that was a case where the person who, the people who started it were not, um, they were not super rich. They were certainly not celebrities. They were not already super connected in the sector, but they did have enthusiasm and energy. And the, the main director, a woman named Allison Hurst, was really inspiring to people. Her, her, her love for the kids, her acceptance of people at kind of wherever they were, both with the young people, but also with volunteers and adults who want to be involved, um, really made her, you know, she was such, she's been such a warm figure that I think people were drawn to her and that's allowed her to build a board that in turn themselves um, are very, you know, are magnetic in a, in a good way, not in a creepy way and have been able to attract donations and more support um, for this project going forward. So they started with just individual donations. And then once they had some track record and were serving numbers of kids, they were able to get foundation grants and then also some government contracts. So they've been able to grow and expand their services, but it started with someone who saw a need tested out ways to meet it, and then was able to inspire and build important relationships with others. If you're a jerk, you can only go so far as a nonprofit leader, as a community benefit organization leader. Sorry. That's okay. That's another quarter for you. Well, yeah. um, you know, and, and for people who are not in the L.A. area, Venice is an area that has a huge historic homeless population because it's a beach area, and it's a very um, it's a very touristy public beach that, uh, you know, a lot of panhandling can happen on. And so it's always had a big homeless population. It also has several housing projects, but it also has some of the wealthiest people in West Los Angeles living there. So it has the, both the very rich and the very poor, which is a good backdrop for a 501c3 because you need people to fund if you're going to do things to benefit the community for the lower end. So, um, you know, it's nice to have that juxtaposition uh, in your community. So if, if people are in other cities, they don't live in Los Angeles. They're listening to this podcast in some other urban area of Los, uh, sorry, of, of the United States. Um, how would they go about finding someone to do fiscal sponsorship for them? Is there a way they could Google? Yes, I would Google the National Network of Fiscal Sponsors. I think it's nnfs.org. And they have a directory of fiscal sponsors across the country. And actually, we, even we, um, who, you know, who, who co-founded the National Network and who interact with other fiscal sponsors all the time, we didn't realize how many groups were doing fiscal sponsorships. And a few years ago, um, someone who had worked at Social and Environmental Entrepreneurs, which is a, a, another fiscal sponsor here in L.A., out in Calabasas, um, said, oh, you know, you two should meet. So, you know, he introduced me to the director over there. She and I had lunch. And then we said, oh, we should start meeting like maybe every quarter. And then someone from the Bay Area said, gosh, you know, we're starting a fiscal sponsorship program. We'd really love to talk with you guys. Can we just come, to, can one of us come down next time you're doing this? You know, we got family in L.A. We'll come down and we'll have lunch together and talk some more. And now that has grown. And a couple of years later, now we have a local Southern California fiscal sponsors network. We have people coming in from, coming up from San Diego, coming down from the Bay, coming in from Orange County and the Inland Empire. And we meet about every quarter uh, for a couple of hours over lunch. We have a little Facebook group. We have a roster. We probably have 20 or 30 organizations now um, that are coming to those meetings and we just sit we sit around, we talk shop, people send in questions in advance and we put those on the agenda and then we'll talk about, gee, what payroll service are you using or, gee, how do you handle it when you're trying to manage risk and your projects are like, oh, oops, I forgot to tell you, we're taking 30 kids on a college tour across the country next week 
you know, so it's, it's, um, it's a nice peer learning opportunity and peer sharing. And we also, also share Intel, you know, like one of the things we've recently learned from another fiscal sponsor is that the California Employment Development Department, which is our Department of Labor, is really cracking down on people who have been misclassified as contractors when they should be employees. And from a progressive standpoint, this is terrific because people really get exploited that way. But for fiscal sponsors, it's a little hairy because sometimes the work that people are doing, it looks like consulting to us, but it can kind of look like employment to the um, Department of Labor. So we've had to go through, you know, and this fiscal sponsor, they had a big audit and it was, you know, time consuming and expensive and they did get dinged on some of the groups and there were big fines. So we've been now sort of going back through and saying, you know, if you're a project leader, we know you work really independently, but you're not really, you can't really be a consultant, you really need to be an employee. Um, so we've been really thinking more and, and looking more carefully at, at some of our work, thanks to, you know, heads up and knowledge that we've gotten from our colleague fiscal sponsors. So that's been lovely. And there are many, many fiscal sponsors. They work on all different kinds of things. One of the members of that group, they only do um, fiscal sponsorship for documentaries. Another fiscal sponsor, um, it's one small piece of what they do, but they also do grant making. You know, so it's really a mix. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's an issue that, uh, that 501c3s all over the country are going through now because the IRS is kind of coming down on this difference between um, contractor versus, and it happens a lot with our groups too, where, you know, you're hiring a teaching artist, are they a contractor or are they staff? And, right. and that's the issue we're all dealing with, I think. So, yeah, that's, that's interesting that, uh, that you've had to come across that. Well, that, that's really good to know. And, of course, if people are in Los Angeles, they can find you at communitypartners.org. Yes, absolutely. Please come in or give me a call. Come, come and see us. Now, you know, people don't have to, uh, you know, if, if everybody who wanted to start a 501c3 or wanted to kind of start even just some kind of community group uh, in, their, in their neighborhood, uh, if they all came to you, you'd be inundated. And, and it's perfectly fine to find other uh, 501c3s to help out, too. And there's, you know, I always give the example that if, you know, a lady starts a, an after-school tutoring thing out of her garage and it becomes kind of a full-service after-school program for kids in that neighborhood that don't have a Boys and Girls Club, there's no reason that they couldn't go to the Boys and Girls Club and see if they would fiscally sponsor them. Um, Correct. And, and, we, and we sometimes encourage that, particularly for small, very, for micro-organizations or when you're just starting out and you're trying to pilot something. Like, oh, we have this idea. We want to see if it has legs. You know, can we test it out? It's like, yeah, find, a, you know, maybe you have a friend who has a 501c3 or maybe you have a, an agency with a related mission in your neighborhood that would be willing to do it for you. And, they'll, and they might do it for a very low fee, for very simple services, like they'll take donor money you know, or whatever, or they'll provide some kind of insurance um, coverage. I would always recommend in those settings that you just get a little bit in writing, even if it's an MOU. It doesn't have to be, a, you know, a huge binding contract written by lawyers because everything gets more complicated when the lawyers get involved. But I would have a piece of paper that says, what, that just puts in writing what your expectations are and what their expectations are. Because what I hear from people who've done agency fiscal sponsorship is that, and, you know, and we get groups converting over that have grown under agency fiscal sponsorship and they've kind of outgrown the sponsoring church or the sponsoring um, nonprofit. Profit, uh, community benefit organization, and then they come to us. And what I've heard sometimes that the horror stories can be, you know, often there are good stories, but sometimes the hard stories are, you know, we could never get, you know, the bookkeeping was complicated and we could never get the agency's bookkeeper to give us a, an accounting of what we had in our account. Or we never put in writing what the process would be if we wanted to separate and leave and what we would get to take with us when we went and whether we would get to take our intellectual property or whether we would have, you know, continuing liability or, you know, what, what would be involved. So it's always good to get in writing, you know, what you expect, what they expect, what services they will provide, what, if any, fees you will pay and then how you will separate from each other and evaluate your relationship if it's not working out, or even if it is and it's time to move on. So I would just get something in writing. 
Yeah, a simple letter of agreement. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I've, always, I've always really enjoyed sponsoring uh, people that have good leadership potential because they become a program of, of my organization. I can sometimes help them out with grants. Uh, we'll usually take 10% for administrative support for the grants and give the rest to them as a program. And then they become a program of us when we're doing our annual report at the end of the year. We have all this great new outreach programs and new sites, and it looks fantastic to you know, both help them out and it, it helps our program and budget out as well. So, you know, I think it's good on both ends. Yes, I agree. And for large agencies, it can be a way of giving some, um, giving some opportunity and some support to grassroots efforts. So exactly. maybe someone's not ready to run a big nonprofit, uh, a big community benefit organization, but they are ready to test something out and there's some there there. Um, and so it's a way of kind of low risk on both sides. Yeah, when I, when I run cultural centers, we would sponsor like a ballet folklore group or something. And it was a really great way for them to kind of learn how to be uh, basically learn uh, uh, management of a community benefit organization. And they usually were fantastic at growing their organizations. And, you know, they would raise thousands of dollars at concerts for costumes and go to Mexico and get the costumes and bring them back. And, you know, it was just really great to be part of that. Yes, I agree. So um, we're going to be doing another podcast episode on strategic partnerships. And, you know, I just wanted to, you to talk about your role in establishing coalitions between the people that you sponsor. Oh, yes. Well, we do some um, relationship building among the people that we sponsor. So, for example, we do peer learning groups from time to time. And sometimes we'll convene people around a theme. Like sometimes we convene, we've convened groups that are all working or trying to work with the behemoth that is the L.A. Unified School District. Um, and sometimes <laughs> we'll try to bring in experts from the school district to explain, like, yes, here is how you navigate the contract system, or here is how, you know, you get access to a campus. Um, we also have found it's really helpful to convene groups by organizational stage. So even if you're working on totally different issues, but you're in the stage where you've just hired your first employee, you have a lot to talk about with other groups at that same organizational stage. Or if you are at the stage where you have multiple employees and you're now getting into like more complex management and growth issues, you have a lot more in common with a group that's working on a totally different issue, but in that same stage than you do with a group that's working on the same issue, but is in a completely different organizational stage, like all volunteer. So we've convened like that. The other thing that we found community partners is really helpful for in the field is that we're a great neutral home for coalitions and collaboratives. So groups of organizations, some of them may be 501 c some of them may be grassroots, are, will come to us and say, we need a, we're building a coalition or a network together. We don't want it to get captured by any one member agency. So we want to cite it here at community partners and have community partners be the home for it so that we, we, we're all equal players in it. And then any well, money we raise for it comes into community partners and then community, you know, and if we hire staff and so on, they're an employee of community partners, they're not an employee of any one member. And thus the, the whole thing, they don't get captured by that member. Well, yeah, that's brilliant because uh, a lot of times when people start collaboratives, there's always the fear that the collaborative is going to cannibalize their funding right. um, by, by being another competing 501c3. But if they're going through you, they don't have to worry about that. Right. Do you do that a right. lot? Exactly. What, what are some examples? We, we probably have, oh, we probably have 20 or 30. We have, um, we've had the Violence Prevention Coalition, which is a number of violence, um, anti-violence groups, gang prevention and suppression and, and related groups. Interestingly, out of that group, a bunch of people, a bunch of groups that had been members of that group and had been kind of a subcommittee of that group, which were a, a group, a bunch of arts organizations that were working with incarcerated youth decided to form their own network because they started to do programming together and then raising a lot of money. So they decided to form their own network, which they brought to community partners, which was, which is now the arts for incarcerated youth network. So we sort of got like a grandchild out of that, um, that, that 
project. And then um, we just recently got a proposal from one of the members of the Arts for Incarcerated Youth Network that was sort of informally like had agency fiscal sponsorship. Um, and then now they're applying to community partners to be their own um, project of community partners and be a little bit more like a, you know, operate a little bit more like an independent nonprofit, but uh, community benefit organization, but they will still be a member of the Arts for Incarcerated Youth Network and the, the network wrote them, a, referred them here and wrote them a, um, a reference letter. So, you know, we've had, so we have that group and we, we've had um, funder collaboratives. We have a group called Southern California College Access Network, which is the member organization of a number of different college access and success um, organizations around the region, some of which are also projects of community partners. So some of their larger members, College Match, Determined to Succeed, Ready to Succeed, um, and others are, mem- are community partners projects. And then there are a number of outside organizations that are also members of this network, but the network itself is housed here. And that network leader has been part of our, we've had at times on and off, a peer learning group for employees who work with networks who are like executive directors or, or network managers for networks because being the leader of a network is so, so very different than being the executive director of a single organization. And they have unique challenges that they face, right? Because their authority comes from persu- persuasion rather than positional power. There's, you know, there are a variety of fundraising challenges around networks. There's a lot of work to both provide member services and then also to do joint activities like advocacy with network members. So we've we've sort of made a specialty of being a home for networks and we've also done quite a bit of consulting and training around networks. Our exec, our CEO and president, Paul Vandeventer, worked with an academic to write a book. It's now in its second printing called Networks That Work, which is sort of a you know like a practitioner Bible for for doing networks effectively. We've done a bunch of training here actually for the Department of Public Health for their um, community engagement workforce, which some of that is public health nurses, some of that is community health workers who were hired to do things like give immunizations and train people on health practices and are now being redeployed to build and staff coalitions with community groups and government and other uh, partners to advance health objectives in cities and in areas of the county. So it's a really different orientation for them to participate in that way in community. So we've been doing some retraining for them around community engagement and particularly in, in building and effectively managing and coordinating coalitions. Wow. 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 Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm gobsmacked at how big you've gotten. And because really I haven't been in, in, in uh, you know, in relationship with community partners since the nineties and, I'm just, I'm gobsmacked at how... Yeah, we're bigger uh, now. We're really bigger. We have about $42 million in um, in revenues now from both, you know, that we're managing for our projects and that we're doing, um, you know, and through our grant maker initiatives, we do regranting for a couple of big funders as well. So, yeah, we've yeah. gotten quite large. Our largest individual project is three million, has a budget of $3 million a year, and our smallest is probably at about twenty five or 30000 a year. So it's a huge range. You must work a lot with the community foundations as well. We do. They refer people to us. You know, when people call us and they're like, oh, I want to give some money, uh, and it sounds like a donor advised fund, we send them right over to the community foundations, um, California Community Foundation or Liberty Hill Foundation. And when they get people who are like, yeah, I, I have a donor advised fund, but I also want to really get involved in the community and give money for an active, you know, uh, community benefit organization where we're actually doing activities, they'll send them right over to us. So we're, we're definitely yeah, I, in contact. I, I, we get a lot of referrals from TA providers also from capacity builders and technical assistance providers, consultants to the nonprofit sector. That's one of our biggest sources of referrals also. We, we had a great podcast that we did with uh, Shelly Hoffman, the Orange County Community Foundation, who's really great to talk to. Oh, um, good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just want to kind of wrap it up a little bit in terms of 
So if somebody is thinking, oh, I, I really need this not a 501c3 organization to do this thing I've been dying to do, uh, other than uh, obviously, you know, we talked about it would be great if they could get 80% of their resources kind of in order first and know yeah. where it can be funded mm-hmm. from. Um, but what else would you advise them to do kind of as their first steps to getting started if they really think this is something they should do? I would definitely look into fiscal sponsorship or agency fiscal sponsorship as a way to start it. Or even if some organization is doing something related to what you're doing, try to see if you could go work for them or have some kind of pilot with them where you're trying to develop this related line of activity um, that would have to do with that existing institution. I think a pet peeve that I have also, um, and I'm saying this as a white person who grew up with a lot of privilege, and you know, and is that I see people um, from my kind of my color and of my class who are like, oh, I really want to help poor people of color. I want to help kids, you know, who wouldn't have access to college get into college, or I want to help these folks or that folks, those folks. And sometimes you have a lot of power that you can bring to doing that work. So you can start something, you can bring volunteers in, you can get, you can access money, particularly like maybe family foundations or friends or friends of friends have donor advised funds or, you know, or you know somebody who worked at Google or you know somebody here or there who can get you corporate donations and so on. So you can bring a lot of resources to bear. And sometimes you can start programs that really are helpful to people. And at the same time, you're, you're not accountable in that community that you're working in, in the sense that like when you get bored or when it gets hard or when you want to go, you can be like, you know what, I'm going back to Laguna or I'm, oh, I'm going back, you know, to, um, I decided to move to Manhattan. It's going to be more fun, you know, and, uh, oh, I guess I won't be doing this anymore. And if you haven't been really, really deliberate about engagement and building leadership that you are accountable to, then that organization will really just go away. And it's like, oh, I helped those kids for five years. That's good. You know, and then you're gone. And, 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 you know, you kind of left people in the lurch. And so I feel like we have to be really mindful about where are we doing this for our gratification and our desire to help people and where are we building something that can outlive us and where are we having a kind of hubris about this? Because if we pull out, no one's going to come bother us in the country club and be like, hey, what happened to that thing? You know, the way that if we had a meltdown at our local, I don't know, PTA or something, you know, that people, you know, you would face repercussions for that among your circle in your community. So um, I, I, I'm trying to think about that. I, I, I'm, I'm being somewhat inarticulate about it, but it's something I've been no, I, seeing I on and off over the years. And, um, and it's something I, I really want us to stop doing. You know, I want, I want us to come collect, you know, those of us that are, that are these people, I want us to collect each other and say, hey, not good, not right. What can we do to support and back and be an ally and an accomplice to leaders who are, are people who are actually experiencing the problems, are actually accountable to the communities of service and to do it their way and to provide resources and support and whatever they need so that they can lead. Which is not to say that people from communities, you know, can't be imperfect. I, you know, I've met this, you know, occasional sociopath. I've met, you know, people who are incompetent, who are, you know, in the grassroots and are accountable to those communities and eventually, you know, they get caught. So it's not to say that everybody is perfect. It's, it's just to say, like, let's do this in a different way. Let's not do it for our gratification. Let's do it in a way that leads to real change. Yeah, I call that the, I call that the kind of West L.A., South Orange County uh, missionary patronizing effect, you know, where, <laughs> where people want to be humanist missionaries and they want to go out and, and you know, do, do things for a good cause, which is a great thing to do, but they don't have any skin in the game and they, it comes off as kind of paternalistic and they're, they're not really partnering with the community they want to help. They're just kind of coming in and saying, you know, I want to help you poor people. 
you know, right. and if right. really And to me, the sun is, if your entire staff is white, if your entire board is white, this is a hair on fire emergency. This is wrong, 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 wrong. And it's much easier to build something that's truly diverse if you start that way. It's very hard to like make it a white thing and then try to diversify it later on because then you're asking people to do it your way just as a person of a different color, right? So I, I do think that it's really in the founding is kind of where the germ of this stuff is that it's is that the, the, where there's the most possibility to get it right. And there's great models out there where people have uh, come from a place of privilege and partnered with people in the community to make real organizations that do real change. Like, you know, uh, Homeboy Industries is a great example where Father Boyle came to a community as a priest and partnered with that community and had people from that community tell him what they needed and be part of the solution where he's just kind of using his expertise as a manager to help make things happen. And they created whole, whole social enterprise there. You know, there's a lot of great, great examples. Yeah, or I would think that, you know, if you think of Make the Road, Make the Road in New York, which has now expanded, you know, it was started by two law school grads and it has gone through now several generations of leadership, you know, progressively more indigenous and to that, to those communities and people who have directly experienced the issues that those community organizing groups are working on. So that, I think that's been a, you know, that's been a good model. So it's not that it can't be done. You just have to be super deliberate about how you do it. In general, I think it's just always great in our field for people to use their strengths and find partners who have strengths that match our weaknesses. So that you know, if if you're if you're a person of privilege and you're trying to help in a, in an area that's not your area, then you find a partner from that area who has those strengths. Or even go see what go and do a listening tour where you just see what people in that area are already doing and how right. you can plug into their agenda. You know, rather than trying to convince them to get on board with yours. Exactly. Well, good. I'm glad we're solving all the world's problems today. <laughs> so um, I just have one last question for you. You know, this, is, this podcast is called 501c3DS, the Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. And our, our whole idea behind this podcast is to get rid of all the myths and bullshit out there that people believe in this industry because it's been handed down from generation to generation and clear that all out and tell people the real truth about how they can grow as an organization. So is there some bit of bullshit in our sector that just drives you crazy? Because I'm going to give you a chance to be set free right now by telling us. <laughs> well, I will tell you that um, when people come to us and ask for consulting on developing a strategic plan, I kind of let slip that I don't really believe in strategic plans because oh. I've seen so many, just to be like the real Martin Luther heretic, you know, um, feces on the door here. I think that, of course, planning, of course, strategy, of course, you have to think about what you're doing and see if it's having an effect and think about where you want to be and what you want to do next. And, of course, you have to get input from you know, people around you to know what your blind spots are. But I have seen so many situations. I've facilitated them myself where you know, we, have a, we do you know, some key informant interviews and we do a SWOT analysis that's the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, right. and then we have a board retreat and then you know, everybody gets excited. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to go this way and we're going to go that way. And then, oh, and, and then we'll just raise all the money that we need. Or, or we'll just get a development director who'll raise all the money that we need to do that. And I, I just find that so useless. So I think now when I'm working with boards or working with organizations about planning, it's more about what are five things that you can put on one sheet of paper in terms of action steps. And I really like, I don't know if you've come across the book, um, Nonprofit Sustainability. This is the Matrix Map Model um, book. This is by Jan Masaoka, Gene Bell, and Steve Zimmerman, who are some very bright people. Jan Masaoka now runs California Nonprofits. Gene Bell runs... Um, a consulting firm up in the Bay Area that I'm forgetting the name of. Um, that's fantastic. And what they um, what they do is, is is kind of looking at everything you do. They have a whole method, um, which I now teach to groups, for looking at 
sort of the uh, all your programs and all your fundraising activities, and you look at them on a grid that shows you their impact and how much they cost and their profitability. So you, you map everything out, and suddenly you can see on one page, oh, we have this uh, river education program that has a huge and raises a huge amount of money because everyone wants to see the kids learn about the river, and it has quite a bit of impact on kids. Um, and so that's in our successful quadrant. And meanwhile, we have a board that is totally focused on advocacy for which we raise no money and for which we're having limited impact. So it's, you know, it's a way of kind of making your blind spots more visible and seeing where you have energy and where you have money and where you have impact and where you're and, and, and moving forward and strengthening those areas and seeing where you're having the intersection of low impact and high cost. And that's where you have to say stop no matter how much we love this or no matter how much, you know, it's what we've always done. We have to stop doing this. It's not helping anyone and it's draining our organization of resources. So I use that more now and, and just try to make it a little bit um, less about, oh, we'll have a 20 page plan and all our, and all our problems will be solved. So I've kind of, I'm, I'm kind of off strategic planning. Wow. You know, I was about to pick a fight with you, but uh, I, I think you ended up coming around to basically what I believe, and you're disagreeing with me by agreeing with me, I think. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I make a living doing strategic plans as part of my living, and I'm a huge believer in them because I, I've turned around about six different organizations through strategic planning. But I agree with you that most people do it completely wrong. I think most people... You know, they have the one-day retreat. They write up a plan. Right. They throw it in the drawer and never look at it. What right. I find to be beneficial is to do a real evaluation of your current programs, seeing what's working, what's not working, a real evaluation of your staff and your volunteers and your board to see, you know, what is what is broken and what, what needs to be fixed and what's working fine and what you can, can uh, excel on uh, based on what you're already excelling on. And then doing that strategic planning process and really making people own what they say in it because I think – Strategic planning is really useful in this respect, that if I come in as a new leader with a lot of knowledge and, um, and, and experience in running an organization, and I tell you that you need to do X, Y, and Z, you have no investment in doing it because it's not your idea, right. it's my idea. Right. But if, if I do that group planning session with you after doing real analysis of what's working, what's not working, and, you, and you're the one who says, oh, well, this hasn't been working, we should do this instead, and you as a board member comes up with this and I make you own it now because it's your idea, then that can go a long way to really getting you invested. Because I think most boards are not as invested as they should be in the organization. Right. And a lot of times it's because they don't see things as being their ideas. And when you do that strategic planning process in the right way, I think it becomes their idea and they own it and they're invested in it. And that's what changes the organization. So I disagree with you a little bit. But I, I think that I'm going to read that book that you mentioned. Yes, it's called Nonprofit. Yes, I'll, let me give you the name. It's Nonprofit Sustainability: Making Strategic Decisions for Financial Viability, and it's by Gene Bell, Jan Masaoka, and Steve Zimmerman. Oh well, with a and, short title, that, that's very. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can get it on Amazon or online somewhere. It's uh, it's Jossie Bass is the is the publisher, not surprisingly. Well, there's a really great book called The First Hundred Days. Leading Nonprofits Out of the Wilderness by Zoot Velasco. You should check that out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. What are you talking about? It's on my bedside table right now. You know, I'm just, okay. uh, good. good. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, and I, I thank you for giving me so much time, and um, I'm really thrilled with what your organization has become. You make me want to quit my job and just go work for you. But, uh, hey, and we're in a beautiful building, too. We're in a multi-tenant nonprofit building that the California Endowment built. Oh, uh, I so highly recommend it. Yes. I was Second floor. I was part of executive service corps training there uh, 
uh, under Wells Fargo did an executive service course. Oh yes, sure. Leaders there. And we send some some training. of our nonprofit leaders go. Some of our leaders of our projects take that training. We love it. It's a beautiful building. Well, yeah. Uh, if you have openings, let me know. Okay, <laughs> will do. So nice to meet you, dude. Thanks for interviewing me. I want to thank you for taking the time with us on 501c3bs. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days, on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian choro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.